the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, he is here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It's the second day of August at 5 past the hour of 5 o'clock on your uh, basic Wednesday. And uh, welcome to the midpoint in the week. Hope it's been a fairly kind week to you. And to talk to the boss, he said, you come in tomorrow and the day after, and he's going to give you the next couple of days off. I Just just the kind of pull that I've got. <laughs> Any event, welcome to the show. we got a lot going on this evening, and uh, we're going to dive in a little bit later on tonight. Uh, you've heard all of the excitement about this new film, The Sound of Freedom. I was just reading prior to the broadcast tonight that a, a nationwide, um, what do they call it, a sting operation, has netted more than 120 perpetrators of essentially sex trafficking. Wow, getting a lot of attention, and that's good because we need to stop this. We're going to talk about it coming up later on in tonight's program. Haley McNamara will join us. Vice President of Communications with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Why you need to be aware of this, how you can get involved, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the program tonight. I bet perhaps, depending upon your personality, there have been moments when maybe you've sat waiting patiently on God, almost paralyzed hoping that he will move in your life, in your work, in your ministry, what he's called you to do. That certainly describes a good percentage of believers. And then, of course, there's the other group, <laughs> which I find myself frequently in as a largely type A personality, where we're waiting on God, but if God doesn't move fast enough, we're just going to jump out ahead, you know, kind of pave the way, right? Prime the pump. <laughs> it doesn't always work out that well, though, does it? When you're having a challenge of trying to uh, control your sense of wanting to get out there and do for the Lord before he's given you the green light. Well, my first guest tonight, part of our ongoing series, Leading Ladies Discovering Your God-Grown Strategy for Success, talks about not just the issue of getting too far out ahead of the Lord, but also oftentimes the challenges of a sense of tremendous lack of self-esteem, meaning we get up in the morning, we look at the person that stares back at us in the mirror, and we're just not convinced we like that person. Linda Goldfarb is an award-winning author, contributor to the new series, the new book, Leading Ladies. She is also a speaker, radio personality, and a board-certified Christian life coach. And Linda, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much, Craig. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Boy, there's so much to unpack here. I I, I hardly know where to begin. But let's start with what I mentioned at the last, and that is the sense, and I think a lot of us have it, and 
perhaps part of it based on our family of origin and and how we were raised to see ourselves as others see us, that perhaps we either have a sense of lack of self-value because we don't think we're all that smart or all that good-looking or we're the kid that always got picked over, uh, you know, for dodgeball and, and the playground. And after a while, we came to convince ourselves that we weren't quite worth all that much. And I understand that that's a, that's a struggle that you can relate to. Oh, it certainly is. And as you said, it is not a foreign struggle to so many of us. And that is so true. I will share with you, as I did in the Leading Ladies chapter, when I was a young person, I had buck teeth, I had a skin disorder, I, you know, I, I wanted so much to belong. I wanted so much for someone to like me. And I discover in later years that has a lot to do with my God design and how he created me. And he didn't create me incorrectly. It's just I didn't understand my value to him as a young person. And therefore, with what I looked at and what I saw in the mirror as devaluing aspects of me, I really didn't like myself very much. And in that process, it's real easy to convince ourselves that no one else would either. I mean, why would they? If they knew what was what your thoughts were, if they knew what you were like behind the mask of laughter. Because I'll tell you, Craig, I was that funny person. I realized at a young age, you know what? If I can make people laugh, then they won't laugh at me. They'll laugh with me. Hmm. And I didn't discover until later in my, probably in my mid-20s, that the laughter was protection. I actually started my speaking career in as a Christian comic. And I would come on before the main keynotes would come on and I'd make everyone laugh. And I said, oh, well, that's what I'm all about. And part of that would even be where I would talk down about myself. And, and everyone laughs at that, right? And that protective coding that we have, you know, we don't grow out of it, Craig. If it is not addressed, if we do not start to identify ourselves as how God designed us and how purposed we are, we fall into a place of self-deprivation. We fall into a place of allowing others to control us because we so want to belong. And as you mentioned, even at the the front end, I know you have a guest who's going to talk about it because that is amazing, amazing film that's out there and uh, the, the Sound of Freedom but individuals that can get caught up in that are also individuals who they want to belong. And if someone is cunning enough, if someone is clever enough, if someone uses just the right words, they're going to suck you right in and suck you right out 
of who got this IG. So they essentially manipulate that lack of of, of self esteem, and I and I, yeah. I hesitate to even use that term because our our sense of esteem needs to be based on how God sees us, and God, of course, right. is very clear that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in His very image. God being uh, holy, perfect, He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't create inferior beings, though we right. oftentimes struggle in the flesh. And I guess to a degree, th- that sense of whether you're the person that always hides in the corner because you don't want to get noticed, or you become the class clown because uh, you're doing this as a as a means of sort of um, deflecting the arrows that get shot in your direction. Those all really become coping mechanisms, don't they? They're, they're ways in which we can manage our sense of lack of value and, and the way that we feel as if we can't be as good as, you know, the star football player or the star cheerleader or, you know, whoever plays first chair in the high school band. And, and all of a sudden we see ourselves as damaged goods and we allow people to take advantage of, of us as a result. Oh, absolutely. You are spot on. Um, for several years, Craig, I studied personalities, and with, along with a great friend of mine, we actually created the a linked the linked uh, Quick Guide to Personality series. And in that the discovery, we are polar opposites in personalities. And the things that I assumed about her personality, and the things she assumed about my personality, when we came together and realized it was empty assumptions. We started discovering at a deeper level, oh my goodness, we're seeing ourselves not the way that God created us. And when that light comes on, then our world opens up. And if we did have that perfect God view of us personally, Craig, I agree with you. We we would be on fire. We would be lit for him. We Nothing could hold us back because... We would know, we would claim that purpose and that de- design, and we would be kicking it in the world today. But we all aren't privy to that unless, I believe for me, unless we start asking him for it. And that's what happened to me. Craig. And you know we that's can we can be folks that that go to church regularly, study the oh, word, yeah. pray, you know, live the right life, do all the right things. And you know, some folks might think, well, this you're just talking about kids that have low self esteem. No, I, I this this can be this can be an eighty year old that's lived an entire life with a sense of being less than. Yes, yes. Oh, you are right there. I tell people. Please don't put others in a box and think, oh, it can only be someone else's child, someone else's friend. Oh, my goodness, no. It is each one of us has, we are not immune. None of us are immune to this. And to pigeonhole someone because, oh, you must not have been in church or you didn't get enough schooling or don't have enough faith. No, 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 no. I was raised in church. I was, I knew all the words. I knew everything. I, I mean, I knew every answer to every question. I got every star that you could possibly get in memorizing scripture. Yet I found myself, Craig, at 38. And, well, uh, I'll step back for a second. At the age of nine, I lived in England. And with my, my parents, we were military family. My brother stepped forward one evening service to be baptized. 
And I'm thinking, well, he's not going to outdo me. So I, I got up. I went down front. I answered all the questions that everyone asked about Jesus because I knew the answers. And I was baptized in that church at the age of nine. When I was 14, I was at youth camp. And when I was at youth camp, there was a youth pastor. And the way that she opened up Jesus to me, I wept, Craig. I wept. I was on my face and I was like, oh, I've not known him like this. And in that moment, Jesus became my savior. But I'm going to share today that it wasn't until the age of 38 that he became my Lord. Mm. And I was at a broken place. I, Craig, I'd been speaking. I mean, I was speaking in women's retreats. I, there was, I mean, I was on fire for Jesus. I was out spreading the good news. I was doing all of this, thinking that I was who I was supposed to be. And it was that one night where I just fell. I literally fell to my knees in my living room. And I said, you know what? You know what, Father? And I call him Abba Daddy. I do that. I said, I'm at a place where I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And please create in me a hunger for you. A hunger more significant than my love for my husband. And please give me a thirst for you, for your word. More remarkable than my love for my children. God something is missing and I believe that it's you and I believe in Jesus I believe in all that I'm to believe but I feel so empty please fill me with your Holy Spirit and you know what's amazing about that is that sense of the more that we surrender to him the more we will in time with study in the word and prayer become more like him the more perfected we become in him and through him and then now the increase of the opportunity to begin to see ourselves more like him as we become more like him and it completely changes your your attitude your behavior and can be liberating this is Reader's Digest, can we even say that does it justice? This is like trying to tell you the entirety of the book of War and Peace in one sentence. It really can't be done. And clearly, uh, 10 minutes in our conversation with Linda Goldfarb barely scratches the surface, which means it's a good excuse to invite Linda back on for a lengthy conversation because this is this is the onion and we've got all these layers that we need to just peel back. Let me say that this is part of our ongoing series, Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success, newly released by Bold Vision Books. You can check it out online through the usual suspects, Amazon, as well as through LeadingHearts.com. That's LeadingHearts.com. Linda, we got to have you back just way too little time for as much as we need to talk about today. Linda Goldfarb, again, she is one of the contributors to Leading Ladies Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success. We're going to get her back on real soon. Time out right now as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Let's um, turn a corner here and deal with another topic that um, just seems to continue to raise its ugly head, and that is the erosion of parental rights across the nation. 
And a lot of it seems to be tied into gender dysphoria, gender identity politics, and eventually saying to parents, hey, we got this. We're the government. We're here to help. Let's get the latest as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, as always, great to have you with us. Um, this time, instead of being California, it's New Jersey. But, uh, you know, whether it's the East Coast, the West Coast, it's a blue state. And a state that apparently doesn't do a real job at excelling at respecting parental rights and protecting kids. Tell us what's going on. Oh, yes. Uh, the uh, Attorney General there of New Jersey, Matt uh, Plackton, he filed a uh, a complaint with the Division of Civil Rights against the Hanover Board of Education. The reason he did that is because the Hanover Board of Education uh, wants to have a policy that says something really radical, like uh, parents should have a right to know what's going on with their kids at school, especially when it comes to any issue dealing with their mental or emotional well-being, or i.e., uh, if the child is having gender identity confusion or dysphoria, parents should know. Uh, the attorney general says no. Uh, you know, that's not the position of the state. They say, he says that school districts uh, cannot be allowed to, to let parents know what's happening to their kids. Uh, they have to create a shadow file that parents don't have access to that's uh, dealing with the children's uh, mental health and emotional health. So we at Pacific Justice Institute, we have decided to file a motion to intervene in this lawsuit on behalf of the Hanover Board of Education and the parents of that school district. Wow. And, you know, it's 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 tragic because I suggest, you know, I, I realize that some will argue, well, if a parent finds out parents may not respond real well, we know that every parent is not perfect. But to see the manner in which children are being allowed to make life-altering, life-changing decisions with no parent parental um, guidance or oversight whatsoever, and the notion of not even allowing parents to know about what's going on with issues that involve their own children's mental emotional or spiritual well-being. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't had this discussion because we would have thought it was a chapter out of A Brave New World or uh, Orwell's 1984. And now here instead, we're living it. You're, you're absolutely right. I like those analogies because we're dealing with an element of extreme government control uh, over children. When they do that, they deprive parents of their God-given fundamental rights over the uh, health, education, welfare, and mental and, and the uh, religious upbringing of their children. And that's not my language. That's actually from the United States Supreme Court in two decisions in the 1920s, Myers v. Nebraska and Pierce v. Society of Sisters. So what this attorney general is doing, he's the one that's deviating substantially from established case law with regards to the fundamental rights of parents. And I'm a little confused. All of a sudden, start going through almost systematically and and targeting districts and school boards, uh, even if they create a policy that is attempting to try and protect parental rights and and provide the best for a child. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand, Counselor, and I realize this is largely a rhetorical question, but I'm trying to understand what makes 
an adult in that kind of position of power and authority to think that a a a twelve year old a eight year old is capable of drawing these kinds of conclusions? I mean, you know, mo- mo- most kids at that age are still struggling with what they want to be when they grow up, let alone to make a life altering decision today that yeah, I think I was born in the wrong body and therefore I'm going to make a change or I'm going to identify differently or I'm going to show up to school and change clothes and and be presenting myself as a girl when my gender is actually a boy. I mean, the the kind of long-term emotional damage that can happen, particularly when you intentionally leave the parents who are charged with the responsibility of caring and protecting their children, when you intentionally block them out of that process, how is that not considered child abuse by the state? You're absolutely right. And especially what happens to the children, it's absolutely child abuse. You know, if these children, studies show if they're just left alone, those that have uh, truly have this dysphoria, uh, they will actually work it through, and the overwhelming majority of them will no longer have that dysphoria. But the policy of states like New Jersey, New York, California, Oregon, um, it's to actually encourage it. So once a child shows any semblance of possibly identifying as the opposite gender, they want to nurture it. They want to get the opposite sex clothes there at the school for the kids to change into, uh, put them in the opposite uh, locker room, uh, et cetera. And that is only inhibiting their natural probable uh, recovery from this mental condition. Uh, and that's exactly what the uh, psychiatric manual calls it, a, uh, a mental condition. Um, and uh, it needs to be uh, not encouraged but um, at least at the very least, parents need to be made aware of it. Also, assuming that parents are somehow violent people or dangerous people, that has no precedent whatsoever. Uh, no, parents are the ones the most caring for their kids. We see much more harm coming from the public schools by far. Yeah, well, you know, this is all being generated by the same government that thinks none of us are adult enough to select our own light bulbs. We need the government to tell us that a 8-watt LED is better than a 200-watt in incandescent bulb because most adults can't subtract eight from 200 to come up with a 192 watt difference it's just it's it's the brave new world in which we live brad dacus thank you for staying on top of this and uh, keeping us posted as to what's transpiring on uh, both coasts related to parental rights brad dacus with the pacific justice institute information available online at pacificjustice.org that's pacificjustice.org And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Speaking with my uh, engineer today, who's also our esteemed operations manager of this fine organization, uh, about the fact that you can't, you can't buy incandescent light bulbs anymore because the government is okay with you plugging your Tesla in to recharge the batteries because you won't be buying gasoline. Of course, you're going to be using twice as much in fossil fuel required by the power plant to generate the electricity to charge your batteries. They always leave that little detail out. That's not how it works. That's exactly right. That isn't how any of this works. But now, now, thank heavens, we have... 
the government to make those decisions for us. They'll teach you how to raise your kids and uh, also make sure that you make sure you're choosing the right light bulbs. Wow. All right. Let's turn a corner and uh, deal with another critical topic, a life-threatening topic, and you've undoubtedly been seeing all the excitement related to the film The Sound of Freedom. Just before coming on the air today, I read about a nationwide sting operation that has netted something like two, I'm sorry, 122 some odd perpetrators who have been responsible for pulling people into sex trafficking. It is a, a plague that is impacting all of America as severe as the issue related to illicit drug use. And I know it's easy to say, well, you know, it's the guys that's selling them. Well, you know what? If nobody was buying, they would have nobody to sell to, and they'd have to go find some other way to make money. So it is at the very core a moral issue, but as we attempt to try to target and address the moral side of the equation, there is a real human side of the equation, and that is that human beings in 2023 being trafficked as if they are just chattel. They're just simply property and being exploited on sexual grounds for financial gain. Haley McNamara is Vice President of Strategy and Communications with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Haley, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Certainly this new film, The Sound of Freedom, is shining a big light on this topic and a topic that, um, that continues to be problematic in so many communities across the nation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And you're exactly right. You know, this film addresses really important topics of child sex trafficking and while the film largely focuses on the way that this happens internationally it's very much an issue close to home that's happening all around our own country as well well exactly so and as i allude to you know a lot of people think that well a lot of these issues begin overseas people are being you know smuggled into the country drugs are being smuggled in but the 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 consumer is right here and it's indicative of an extreme degree in my opinion of moral decay within our country Uh, and, and as i say while while we would like to hope to be able to address that side of the equation as quickly as possible there, there is a real issue here in relationship to intervention as quickly as possible uh, for these individuals. And, and people need to understand it, it impacts women and men, and it impacts young children. Sometimes they're kidnapped. Oftentimes they have a spat at home, so they become runaways. Suddenly they're on the streets. And there's even cases where those responsible for the exploitation are known Individuals. In fact, that happens more often than I think most people realize, Haley. Yeah, you're you're completely right. You know, there's actually a stat that an estimated 82% of child sex crimes, so those are all sex crimes that include sex trafficking, begin with contact on social media platforms. Mm. You know, the online grooming of children um, for sexual exploitation is really significant. And like you said, sometimes even people close to the family who ingratiate themselves to the family. So this is a trusted friend or family member or teacher or, uh, you know, even member of a religious community can unfortunately begin grooming and exploiting people. And we'll hear things like, well, you know, why why would anybody choose a life like that? What makes them think that that's so, you know, uh, a respectable or reliable way to 
to make a living. But I think we need to be very clear here that I would imagine the overwhelming abundance of individuals who find themselves on the victimization side of human trafficking, that they, they, they seldom, if ever, choose this, that they are either manipulated into it, coerced into it, or quite frankly, outright in, in, the, in the truest form of, of trafficking and sex slavery, uh, threatened into it, either at the point of a gun or through uh, drug manipulation, uh, other means by which they essentially force a person into this lifestyle. And then once they get caught up into it, it's pretty difficult to get out, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, sex trafficking is really any kind of commercial sex act that's induced by force, fraud, or coercion. And people often think of force like the movie Taken, like kidnapping or being held physically against your will, which unfortunately does happen. But especially in America, one of the primary tactics for sex trafficking is psychological coercion, grooming, gaining trust. Black, maybe sometimes blackmailing or extorting someone, threatening them, and escalating that abuse to the point of sex trafficking. So it might not look like someone who is waving their hands in the air, calling for help, but they could be held in psychological chains, and and um, and that's a really common tactic in the U.S. There was a time here in San Francisco, we had a DA, district attorney, by the name of Terrence Hallinan, that was rapidly moving towards trying to force the hand of the Board of Supervisors to essentially create decriminalized zones in San Francisco that would allow for free trade in prostitution. The argument went that, well, it's, quote-unquote, two consenting adults... It is a, quote-unquote, victimless crime, and rather than jailing uh, women or men that are, that are sex workers and punishing them, that we just need to simply create areas where they can ply their trade w- without the threat of having to deal with the, the, the vice quad, essentially. I, I was shocked when he first promoted this notion many, many years ago. Thankfully, he's not been our DA in a very long time, probably one of the worst in the city of San Francisco. But this notion of this being consenting adults and a victimless crime, offer some feedback on that, would you please? Yes, I'm glad you're raising this because this is a really serious, there's a really serious movement that's going state by state, like you said, trying to fully decriminalize prostitution. And people don't realize what that means is fully decriminalizing pimps and brothel keepers and sex buyers. And there have been studies on the effects of full decriminalization um, and legalization in other countries, and they find that sex trafficking skyrockets in countries and areas that do this. And a big reason why is, like you were talking about earlier, it's the demand. If we think about this as a marketplace, when uh, something becomes legal, more people are interested in buying it. Unfortunately, you've seen that happen in other countries like New Zealand and Germany and others where the sex trade explodes. And actually, there have been some surveys of sex traffickers who all say that they would love full decriminalization because it would make their job so much easier because police wouldn't have uh, the impetus to begin investigating cases. And I would also add on, like you mentioned, significant, the vast majority of people who are engaging in selling sex are not there by choice. Um, Either they're 
sex trafficked by force, fraud, or coercion, or they're there out of true desperation. Maybe someone who uh, doesn't know how to put food on the table for their children, is addicted to drugs, has been sexually exploited as a child, and then internalizes that this is a way for them to uh, continue to be sexually exploited as an adult but make money. Um, and, And we see that there's extreme psychological and physical trauma that happens to anyone who is being bought for sex. Um, So this is a really troubling issue, and it's something that our organization is at the ready. You know, in different states, we try to bring forward some of this research and also survivors to speak about the reality of those policies. Yeah, and when we when we speak of a victimless crime, there are a few crimes, if any, that exist that are that are truly victimless. There's always something being taken from someone. In this case, it is innocence, it is freedom, it is the right to choose, and all of that. And I would imagine, as much as we think that this is largely all at the hands of organized crime, the mafias involved, whatever the case might be, but there are plenty of people that get involved in this that, that perhaps do so how should we say, less formally, but engage in the behavior nevertheless. I mean, for example, a a boyfriend who gets upset with a girlfriend and coerces her because they need money into essentially engaging in prostitution and then might either use embarrassment, information, other forms of threats, up to and including even getting a woman hooked on drugs as a means of, of basically gaining control or power over them to manipulate them into the sex trade and it's one 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 um, uh, form of, of business so to speak where you never run out of product I mean it's it's not like buying and selling goods um, you can victimize an individual over and over and over again and, and to that degree where it's somebody that they know that might even be a boyfriend probably happens more frequently than many realize Absolutely. And another layer there that is happening increasingly is using explicit photos of someone or videos in order to blackmail or extort them into sex trafficking. And that's very often done by a romantic partner or a sex trafficker posing as a romantic partner. Often part of the grooming process is that um, the trafficker makes the victim believe that they're in a loving relationship and they just slowly turn up the dial of abuse, similar to what we know happens in domestic violence relationships. Um, but yeah, so this this uh, spread of technology and the iPhone, very often people will use images of a person to extort them to do things that they don't want to do. And sometimes even uh, post recorded instances of sex trafficking onto pornography platforms as well in order to get another stream of revenue. So we see that this is... Uh, something that it's so easy to be facilitated by technology and absolutely can happen in the context of what someone thinks is a relationship. Visiting today with Haley McNamara, Vice President of Strategy and Communications for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. We've talked about some of the behavior, how some of it happens. When we come back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what we can do to recognize it and to intervene. I'm Craig Roberts. This edition of Lifeline continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about the topic of sex trafficking. And certainly the new film, The Sound of Freedom, is helping to shine a light 
more so on that topic. And, you know, this is, I realize, not polite conversation. You don't strike up this over, uh, you know, dinner with friends and family on a Saturday evening. But there are degrees to which I think we need to be talking about this because it's happening all around us. If you think it's only in the seedy areas of the Tenderloin of San Francisco or when the Super Bowl game is uh, in town at the Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, I got news for you. It goes on all the time, and it's not just people who engage in this behavior that are kidnapping. It's not just boyfriends, but even cases of parents that have forced their children into sex trafficking uh, largely because they're trying to get money so the big question becomes if we can all agree that this is not a victimless crime how do we go about not only raising awareness but doing what can be done to put a stop to it certainly enforcement of laws and stricter laws stricter penalties uh, become exceedingly important but when somebody's been pulled into this kind of lifestyle, it's very difficult oftentimes for them to break free because of the kind of stranglehold that the the um, the pimp will have on them. So how do you address these issues? And, and most importantly, what we can do in order to reduce the number of incidents? We continue our visit with Haley McNamara. And uh, Haley, toward that end, again, th- this may be something that people think, well, it only happens in the bad neighborhoods. But that isn't true, is it? No, this is absolutely that some is something that happens in nearly every community in America, unfortunately, to some extent or another. It's very much close to home. So I think there's a number of things that we can do, luckily. Uh, One of the first things I would say is to learn some of the signs of sex trafficking and know that there is a national human trafficking hotline, which you can make reports to. Some of these signs, it might be really anyone under the age of 18 involved in commercial sex or sex in exchange for anything of value is by legal definition a victim of sex trafficking. Uh, But there are other signs as well, such as uh, even adults or children living with an employer. If you maybe are unable to speak to an individual alone, sometimes you can get a gut feeling of someone's seems fearful. If you know if an employer or someone else is holding their passport or identity documents. But I would say one that's really relevant to um, the average person uh, going about their lives is if you know a friend, family, coworker, or student who's newly showered with gifts or money or becomes quickly involved in a fast-moving romantic relationship, especially if there's any difference in age or financial status, any large difference in that kind of relationship. And I would add on to that if you know any person, and again, especially children, but adults as well, that has a quick kind of whirlwind romance with someone who they know primarily from social media. So these two things are some key ways that traffickers will begin to groom people in the United States. So I, I would keep an eye out for those kinds of warning signs in your own relationships. And I'm curious, is law enforcement beginning to, um, how should we say, rethink their approach to this? Because historically, much of the emphasis was placed on the the, the pimps. And the sex workers feeling as if, well, they're choosing to do this, they're engaging in the behavior, we're going to charge them with solicitation that seems to wholly ignore the kind of forceful influence that's oftentimes operating behind the scenes. 
Right. And we are really pushing for law enforcement to put more emphasis on the sex buyers. At the end of the day, sex buyers really are the root cause of sex trafficking. If no one was willing to pay for sexual access to exploited people, sex traffickers would have no reason to do what they do. So we do have actions on our website where people can ask your state legislators to increase accountability for sex buyers in order to help prevent sex trafficking. That's something that we advocate for, both increasing the penalties, but also we do have good laws on the books in most states, and we just need law enforcement to prioritize that. Give me your sense in terms of how widespread this might be, because I've, I've got to believe that there are people even right now eavesdropping on our conversation and they say, Craig, I go to church, I drive to work every day, I live in a decent neighborhood, I take my kids to and from school, I've never seen any of this, I can't believe it happens in my neighborhood. How prevalent is this behavior nationally? It's unfortunately extremely prevalent, and especially because of the rise of the internet, and it's so much easier now for sex traffickers, but even sex buyers themselves to directly reach out and contact victims or potential victims. The statistics around sex trafficking are always a bit difficult because it's, of course, a crime that's happening in the shadows. So there's estimations, um, but none that I would really put my weight on. But, you know, I grew up in a small town where kids were uh, loved, had intact families who talked to them about online safety and know a person who was exploited online despite all of those safety nets that existed around them. So especially because of the internet, you know, every child and adults as well are vulnerable to this. Yeah, I mean, how difficult is it for an individual who is not of majority that meets somebody in a online chat room, begins a dialogue, and then is being showered with promises? You know, if you're a teenager, what teenager likes their parents, right? <laughs> Few really do. And all of a sudden, you've got somebody on the other end of the uh, the chat room that may be concealing their true identity, their age, et cetera, et cetera, making promises about, you know, hey, come meet with me, we'll hang out, things of this sort. And suddenly that uh, that chance meeting turns into what is essentially a kidnapping. And there can be a very rapid pace of, of seduction that takes place, again, through coercion and manipulation and, and promises of gifts and money and drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly that, that young person that really doesn't have the ability to understand what's going on gets caught up in something and they become a victim. And I think you're right. The perpetrators of this, both in terms of those who who engage in the pimp side of the equation as well as the Johns, that we really need to see stiffer, more serious penalties, like I've often said regarding the whole issue of illegal drug abuse here. Everybody wants to rail against the, the cartels. And yes, they are certainly guilty. But the biggest crime that they're guilty of, of finding a need and filling it, we wouldn't have an ill legal drug problem in America if Americans weren't illegally taking drugs. It's so true. The demand for sex trafficking, for buying people for sex, is disturbing. I think this, it's one of the reasons why people don't want to talk about this issue is because if this issue is in our communities, it means there are people, typically men, in our communities who are engaged in this. And that's just a really disturbing but realistic thought that 
we need to address. And I would add, in addition to needing to raise uh, penalties and enforcement against sex buying, you know, it's when we talk about this scenario of, I, you know, I know stories of young people who are sex trafficked. They went to school every day. They went back home. They slept in their own beds, but their trafficker would pick them up after school and during a time when they were supposed to be at a club that's when they would exploit them. And so this is something that can happen in really every home because like we were talking about this technology aspect. So our organization has been trying to push for technology companies to take more responsibility to help prevent the access of especially children from adult predators. And that's part of what our campaign, The Dirty Dozen List at dirtydozenlist.com three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn delivered for the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.